Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. This is Series 3. We've had two wonderful series of uh, eight podcasts each, and from the feedback, people like what we're doing. And I think we have another series here for you that you're going to like. This one I call Where's the Money? And if I had rights to that song, I'd sing something like, where's the money? But can't use that because I don't have the rights, right? So let me just tell you how this is going to work. Nothing is more political than money. But that's the accepted and assumed to be protected province of the people with the big bucks, the money elite, the 1% with expendable cash. Money makes the world go round. So what about the people we think of as ordinary, middle and working class folks, even those we call the poor? What are the prospects of their acquisition and use of money to change the course of their lives and maybe even save American democracy, even save the planet? How can we get enough money? And what will we have to do to change the political landscape of America. I mean, even a little money for your individual benefit if you're not in that 1%. In Everything's Political 3, we're going to look at just that and the proposition as we ask out loud on behalf of all of us not named. Where's the money? So, we're going to start with episode 1. Any questions, ladies and gentlemen, so far? None whatsoever, none. Episode one, we're going to look at something that's uh, very topical here. We're going to talk about the legalization of marijuana in New Jersey. Speaking of money, you're going to see how much money is involved in this. But now that marijuana is legal, who gets the profit from that which was responsible for putting thousands of people in color people of color in jail and prison where so many still linger today. We're going to talk to some experts in the field from various walks of life, folks that I hope you will get to know and enjoy as much as I have in this little time that we've been together. First, I'm going to start with the Honorable Wayne Smith, who's a former mayor of Irvington, New Jersey. He was a mayor for, uh, what, eight years? Twelve, actually. Twelve years. And is now a consultant doing good things. Next is a a man named Dwight Jenkins, who's director of a nonprofit called Newly Destined, Inc., which houses homeless people, affords protection and assistance for people who need the housing, of course, and also suffer from substance abuse, and need help with mental health access. Dwight was formerly incarcerated, had a six-year sentence out in six months under intense supervision. We'll talk a little bit about more of that in a little while. And the third person, I call him our added starter, his name is Joe Grumbine from California. This is a national podcast. Joe is from California. And he's president of Human Solutions International, which is also a nonprofit. But he is also 
a formulator of cannabis products and formerly a dispensary owner in California. In Los Angeles? Uh, in Long Beach, yeah. And, and L.A. and Orange County. Too. I had three, uh, three shops, yeah. Southern California. Southern California. And, of course, I'm enjoined by my invaluable left hand, my co-host, also the producer, but right now our co-host, Miss Francesca Larson of Mosaic Strategies from right here in New Jersey. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Good to be with you. Now, you heard my long-winded introduction. You're going to hear from me a little bit more because I want to set the table with this uh, conversation about marijuana sales in New Jersey that are now legal. This is from the Daily Princetonian newspaper, Princeton University, by my friend Udi Ofer, who used to be with the uh, American Civil Liberties Union. And he writes, this is a guest editorial, New Jersey enacted cannabis legislation in 2021, promising to create a recreational cannabis market grounded in social equity and racial justice. After decades of criminalizing cannabis and disproportionately arrested people from black and brown communities, the state promised to make amends. Well, did that happen? 18 months later, the state has made big profits, $4.6 million in tax revenue during the first 10 weeks of cannabis sales. But the promises of social equity and racial justice well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I can give you some of the statistics, but I want to have some conversation. First, the good news, arrests are down, but supposedly this law says that priority will be given to folks who had who went to jail for selling product, and that just has not happened. That uh, right now, we've got all of the people 19 recreational cannabis dispensary in New Jersey are owned by eight multi-state operators. So I'm going to start out. I'm going to, I want to ask you, Dwight Jenkins, you've been in jail. You've been in prison. You, you've been labeled a felon. How does that make you feel when you hear that? Well, being a felon is certainly, especially since 9-11, where they're doing an awful lot of record checking. And I'll tell you, once you become a felon, a lot of doors close on your face. A lot of opportunities that you might have had, you can't get past an interview. You can't even get to an interview. Once they check your record and they see that felony on your record, you know, and this is part of the problem that a lot of the youth have now, because you hear them cry about, what do you guys want me to do? Uh, do you want me to uh, work in uh, McDonald's for uh, minimum wage and all because a lot of the opportunities are blocked? So what's happening with this promise that former felons, former people arrested for selling dope? I don't think they distinguish between what kind you sold, but I suppose they want to talk about marijuana. Mayor uh, Wayne Smith what happened to that promise when you see this many people from out of state and none from in New Jersey? Well, just like most things in government in our society, 
And Junius, you, you led the table well talking about inequities. But as a former mayor of a city, I'll tell you that structurally, when you look at some of your challenges as a government official, crime is always one. And there are a couple of nuances to this. I want to try to lay that out real quickly without taking up a lot of time. One is we've got to figure out a way to create opportunities for those returning citizens in every area, not only in this cannabis area, but in every area. I know when I was mayor, when the person had a uh, had was incarcerated, they couldn't even work in a place that sold alcohol. So one of the things that we found out, even with the Prudential Arena was built in Newark and all those jobs were created, they were having a shortage of getting certain type of employees. And one of the things that they found out that returning citizens could not work where a liquor license was held. So we had to end up saying, hey, if you want to get the kind of help, if they're not handling cash or whatever, why can't they do maintenance in the building? So we got some special dispensation to probation and parole and the arena and the state agreed with that. So they let individuals take certain roles in the facility, even though they had a liquor license. But so the cannabis is just acerbates that issue to another level. So the promise was and this whole debate was social equity. We're going to get and some people stood social equity to mean a lot of different things. Some was that returning citizens would have the ability to go into business. Some looked at social equity that minority firms would be able to get in the industry. And I think it has a combination of that. So people lobbied hard and it was a strange coalition of people who were involved with the legalization of marijuana in New Jersey. So I went and testified at the, the Legislative Black Caucus hearings in Elizabeth as a citizen. Senator Rice was at that time was the chairman of the Legislative Black Caucus. And the question was, you know, just plain out legalization. So they had people from Colorado, others. I had some other kinds of concerns that I wanted to raise about legalization. And at the time, I supported decriminalization first as the first step. And the reason why, because I was chairing the International Youth Organizations Board. And one of our greatest challenges, even as a mayor, was the use of drugs and even marijuana, as was viewed at that time as the gateway drug. Junius will remember when I was uh, in Irvington, I had, we had the Ir- Irvington Municipal Council. Even when Mayor Bose was around, we had some anti-drug money. It was called the, Ir- the Irvington Municipal Council. And I hired back. To, what, was your, what was your group's name, Junius? Was back to the source. My group? Return to the source. Return to the source. We had a festival. It was an anti-drug festival. And we had you guys perform at that festival. So I had this whole prevention thing that I and so all of my prevention knowledge was around marijuana being the gateway drug. So I had some concerns about that. And how are we going to address prevention? Because we don't want young people who are not authorized to smoke it to engage at an early age. So what we're going to be the prevention methods? How are we going to regulate the use of an automobile? Will my auto insurance go up? because other people may be driving a vehicle influenced by marijuana. Those were just basic questions I asked the legislator, the legislators were they prepared to deal with. What is the legal requirements when somebody has ingested too much marijuana? So those were some of the basic things. So now the, the issue is who is getting the contracts? And one of the reasons why people are not getting the licenses is because it's a capital intensive business. Junius, you raised the critical points about these multi-state corporations who are, you know, kind of swallowing up all over the country, getting involved in the cannabis business because it's very capital. Even minority firms who don't have a record 
are struggling to get in the game. So I'll give you a couple examples of some people who are getting in. So I had uh, I did some work for a client who um, they have a team and they were husband and wife team. The wife was a physician. She was authorized to do the medical marijuana, to at least write the scripts, to diagnose if you needed it for pain. Have no issue with that. If there's medical use and the doctor is diagnosed, that's wonderful. But you have to be a physician to get in that part of the business or at least, you know, be guided by some physicians. And so that excludes a lot of people, particularly on the social equity side, unless it's going to be black doctors and Latino doctors who get engaged in that. So another uh, uh, associate of mine actually has some real estate. You cannot get a license unless you have a location in New Jersey. You have to have a signed lease or you have to own a property that says this is where that business is going to be located at. And so many people don't have the entry money to not have a going business yet, but have a signed lease where they're paying rent or they buy a building and don't know if they're going to get a license or not. In New York, they're doing a little different. And I'll end with this. New York is considering letting people who were incarcerated, they have a social equity fund as a part of their legislation. They're rolling out now which will make provisions for people to get financing who are returning citizens. That's a great start. New Jersey should revisit what we're doing. And if we're going to really address the social equity side of that equation, then we should be looking at some kind of social equity fund. Yeah, that's $200 million in New York. I was saying $200 million in New York. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other thing I hope is true, they said that the money raised in taxation should go to those communities that were most impacted by the war on drugs and people's incarceration from marijuana. So if that's true, we have to really watch the budget to see if that money is actually spent in the Newarks, the Irvingtons, the East Oranges, the Trentons, the Pattersons, the Jersey cities, in those neighborhoods where those incidents happen. So I'll, I'll just stop there. But those are kind of the gamut of the issues that impact why we're not getting our share, not welfare, but our share. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, you've heard this, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit more from this article, this excellent article by Udi, just to recap some of what Wayne Smith was saying. Yet, so far, these well-meaning promises have not translated into equity on the ground. Business applicants from local communities that have been harmed by decades of a failed war on marijuana must now compete with multi-state businesses that have far significant access to resources and to capital. As a consequence, it has been incredibly difficult for people who are living in the state with arrest records that resulted from the war on drugs to now be able to profit from the scaling back of that unjust war. As I said, 19 so far, all multi-state. What do you think about that, uh, Joe, and how is it in California? Well, it's terrible in California, and it's terrible in every state with maybe the exception of Oklahoma. If you look at the overall reality boots on the ground, what you end up having is, just like you described, a handful of well-funded mega corporations that are greater than 75% share of all the market that's out there. And then they take what's left over and a handful of entrepreneurs or whatnot can get involved. And then they have, in California, we have social equity program that's mandated with the recreational program. But does it work? Well, go look at the stats of 
minority-owned businesses and, and where and how it all came up. There's a handful that have come in and made it and gotten their foot in the door. And even a couple of ex-convicts have been involved in some of that. But it's a handful. And the lion's share of it, it frankly just, it's not what it's supposed to be. So what ends up happening, and I'm a common sense guy, and that's why I'm really not in the big game right now because it doesn't make common sense to me anyways as a small business owner. What's happened in every state that's legalized and I put giant quotes around legalized because federally it's still illegal and federally it's, people are still being prosecuted and incarcerated. And I know those people. And so that's one piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle is that how do you know when it works? Well, I'll tell you, there's a simple gauge when the black market goes away. And in every single state with very few exceptions and Oklahoma, I believe is one of them where the black market's pretty much gone away because their law makes enough sense. If there's still a black market, folks, it didn't work. You have overtaxed, overregulated businesses that are allowed to come into this space and everybody else is still a criminal. And there's illegal grows being raided in California every single day. Cartels have moved in and they're taking over farming communities because they're still an illegal market. It was all done from the very beginning, the first recreational laws, you look at who wrote those bills, you look at who was behind that, and you're looking at big businesses that wrote the legislation to benefit them and exclude the others, and it worked. So that's kind of a, a brief synopsis of a gigantic book. So, Francesca, what do you think? When we have these conversations, I think what gets lost sometimes is who the actual people are and being really detailed about who's impacted. And when we talk about who's impacted and we talk about legalization, we're talking about frequently a singular person. But we all know and we all come from this background that if somebody's been impacted or part of the criminal justice system, it is not a singular person. It is a family. It is a community. And they have also been affected. There are jobs as part of this. They have not been collectively able to own property. They have not been collectively able to get investments. And the other thing that we're seeing, and I'd love to hear y'all thought on this, is the job that somebody had selling drugs makes a lot more money than a minimum wage job right now. And so how are we closing the gap there? So I was going to ask you something similar, Dwight, because maybe you can talk about that. Did you make money when you were selling drugs? I made a lot of money selling drugs. And did you think there were other options? At that time, you know, I mean, I was a lot younger and I felt the same way that you hear the youth talk about now. It's like, at that time, you know, a minimum wage might have been $5 an hour. And I'm like, man, uh, why would I go in here? Uh, like Francesca said, why would I go in here at $5 an hour and make, uh, you know, $40 a day when I can make two or $3,000 a day? It's just, uh, you know, you just can't compare. So we have to have, we have to have some opportunities. And I mean, you don't have to open up a, you know, of course, you can't go from no money 
to you know making a thousand dollars a week uh, uh, legitimately. Of course, you gotta you know you gotta get some education and uh, you know, but we gotta we gotta overlook some of these records that people get you know when you're out there in the streets because, like I said, I wanted to be a guy that earned enough living to be able to provide you know for myself and my family. And if you're not given that opportunity to do that, you're headed for a recidivism. There's no question about it. And that's how I look at uh, the criminal justice system now. And it's just, there's nothing being done about uh, rehabilitation in the criminal justice system, in my opinion. They're just warehousing. They're releasing uh, people back out on the streets with no preparation and the lack of uh, opportunities that can provide enough for a person to be able to take care of their kids and their families. A person that, uh, you know, you're asking a man uh, 25 or 35 years old that might have a couple of kids and they're looking at those kids and the, the kids are hungry and they're like, I can't live like this. I have to do something to provide for these kids. They want clothes. They need to eat. And so there you go. It's a trap 22. So we certainly have to address the criminal justice system. So I heard Joe said that the index for understanding whether the legalization works or not is if drugs are stopped being sold illegally in Newark, in East Orange, in Irvington. And I know you're not in the game, but when you look around, do you see any kind of lessening of the underground economy? Well, like you said, that was a a while back for me. But no, I I think that people are just, and those type of people that's in the underground is certainly not getting the opportunities like these corporations are getting to, to be able to get into that business themselves. So I just don't see, I don't see a change. Yeah, it's kind of, well, common sense would tell you that if it's now legal, the underground economy can operate now. They just, you know, they, they, so there's restrictions on how much cannabis you can have on you at one time, how much you can buy. So they adjust to the marketplace. So they, you know, if they're, they're telling their dealers only carry this amount, you only sell this amount at whatever quantity of the time. So it's a different scenario on the street. You know, so I don't think it's going to change the underground. The fear is, and particularly for young people, I'm going to go back to this point, is that now you're finding marijuana laced with fentanyl. So those uh, drug dealers who are, who are trying to get people addicted so that they make more money are now lacing the illegal marijuana with fentanyl. So that gives a higher level of addiction and so forth. So it's a very strange time we're in, in terms of that. And so I don't think it's going to, and I think Joe is absolutely right. I don't think it's going to lessen the underground economy. And because you can't get an entryway in the legal economy, that's what creates an underground economy. So I have a question for Joe, since California is a few years ahead of us here. Have you seen anything positively change yet? Is there any guiding star that we can look for? Or is it more a series of things that we should be looking to avoid? Yeah, from California's point of view, I would say we're telling you everything not to do. 
California's Bureau of Cannabis Control is a joke. I have personally witnessed, uh, you know, like I said, I'm an OG. I've been around in this world for a long time. And long before there was a market, a legal, a giant quotes around that market. And I've watched people lose millions of dollars trying to get even as a small business, raising money, trying to do it legitimately and getting hit with roadblock after roadblock. Now, California is like New York in the sense of it's tax first and ask questions later point of view. So the California voters got sold a bill of goods that said, well, we're going to tax and regulate it like alcohol and we're going to, everybody's going to be safe and we're going to do this. But what they ultimately did is they created these restrictions. They ultimately gave uh, local jurisdiction the control of what happened. And you got this giant state bureaucracy, local bureaucracies, all interconnected in a way that doesn't work. And taxes laid on top of taxes that every single step of the way from the grower to the processor to the distributor to the you know to the dispensary everybody gets taxed along the way by the time it hits the end of the road nobody's made any money except for the government and then the prices that the consumer has to pay why would you do that when you got a guy that you've known for 20 years that always gave you a good product and he's not putting fentanyl in it and he'll give you the same price for two ounces as you could get an eighth for in the store. And that's what continues to happen. And so in response to your question about Oklahoma, the thing that they have done, and I I was briefly involved in a little bit of business in Oklahoma that didn't work out, but I got a taste of what was going on, is the restrictions, the application fees, the restrictions of locations and involved in all aspects from cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and all of that are just more common sense. They let more people into it. They're less restrictive and they don't tax as hard. So you go to a store in Oklahoma, a legal store, and the price isn't that far away from the underground price anywhere else. So that's where they've leveled the playing field and made it make sense. Remember, folks, this isn't a moral issue. Okay. Nobody has ever died from cannabis. There is no overdose. You can't die from it. So to compare it to anything else is insane. And that's why I advocate for this. I wouldn't advocate for any other drug or any other plant for that matter. But this one is unique and special and it's helped so many people and hurt nobody. And so when you take that component into it and then you clobber it with this giant tax and regulate that just keeps it from working, it's a plant. You can grow it. You can grow it. You can grow it. You can grow it. And I can grow it and nobody can stop us. And that's the part that says, well, these over-regulatory laws are never going to work the way they are because you can't take that out of it. So that's my little... The part of this that is fascinating to me, and I am not an economist and I am not an expert on drugs, so it's very important that folks know that. But the part that is fascinating to me is that it feels like marijuana should be very inexpensive. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would think. (laughs) It's a weed. But now this creates a problem because it was this business that was inflated for generations. And then you have communities of folks that relied on it being an inflated business and the dollars that came from that. And there is nothing to replace it. Let me interject real quickly, because as a farmer, which I have been off and on for most of my life, Even in the reduced price of an 
true equitable market, meaning that it's going to be treated like tomatoes. It'll still be worth more than tomatoes. Even in, you flatten it out. We're all even. We can all treat it like anything. And tomatoes ain't so cheap today. It's true. And this will still be 10 times more expensive than tomatoes, no matter what, because of what it, it's not as easy to grow as tomatoes to do well. And there's a niche nuance to a craft market that will always be there in a way that tobacco doesn't have, in a way that alcohol doesn't have and in a way that more people could get involved. So there's an answer here that could literally help everybody, but we'd all have to let go of something so that we all could get something from it. So what makes that transition so different from alcohol? Remember, we couldn't drink legally in this country for a long time. Well, first, we could drink. Anybody could make whatever they wanted to. I remember there was a big thing about the Germans coming to Newark and the English didn't like the Germans because they made beer and partied on Sunday. That's in uh, riseupnewark.com in case anybody wants to find that. Document it, document it. I'm not telling any tales out of school. So what makes this so different from the transition? You know, they had prohibition. You can't have alcohol. So, But the, we got back into drinking alcohol with no problem. Or were there problems? Somebody. The history of the of prohibition is the problem. So you look at the genesis of alcohol prohibition. It came from a bunch of pissed off women and that were tired of their husbands being drunkards and abusive. And then it, it grew out of that. And America has an alcoholic history all the way to the beginning. And so you look at cannabis prohibition and it came out of big corporate interests being threatened by this crop. And then turning around with the, the newspaper, the paper companies, the chemical companies getting together and creating a propaganda campaign compounded by the, the tax law that came in, creating a crime out of it. And they turned around and took this gigantic, you know, remember, it wasn't the world of the Internet that you had a handful of people disseminating information. And when Hearst, one of the big disseminators of information, started billowing out this racist propaganda, demonizing this plant, and then the government came along. Remember the, the timeline of this. Alcohol prohibition ended. You had the Bureau of Alcohol Enforcement that now had nothing to do. All of a sudden, the DEA gets formed, or the precursor to the DEA. They created this perfect storm of the chemical companies, the pharma companies, the paper companies, all being threatened by this plant, the, the government with this giant bureaucracy agency with nothing to do and this plant that happened to be enjoyed by a lot of different folks, but a lot of poor, dark skinned folks that could be targeted as the enemy. And you put all that together in a perfect storm with a bunch of money behind it. And we created a boogeyman. We created a culture of demonizing this plant that. I'm sorry, you look at anybody over 60 and you still have the remnants of that left behind. A lot of people are still afraid of this because of generation after generation of this most effective propaganda campaign. And then you turn around and take in the 80s with Reagan and the tough on crime, the crack and all that. They lumped cannabis right into it. And then, of course, you got Nixon with the Controlled Substances Act. Somehow we allowed cannabis to be put on that list. And you put it all together, 
And it's not the same. And it, we still have to really unwrap this thing and get down to a common sense place, which we're not at yet. Is that your book? And then the transformation. Yeah, there's still volumes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, Wayne. The transformation from prohibition didn't have a social justice component either. There was no concern about whether black or brown people were going to participate in the legal side of prohibition because it was just was not going to happen in those days. So today, the complication now for, for them is to figure out how we get a part of it since we were most affected by it. So that's going to be a major discussion. The other thing that, that I think is important is remember, this is a cash business. Because of the federal prohibition about the proceeds of going into banks, this is an unusually large cash amount of cash being handled. Now, I'm not trying to say anything, but the, what the tax people do with what people can do with cash businesses is tremendous in terms of understating profits or whatever. So, in fact, one of the opportunities that I've seen some black firms get or at least get asked to try to participate in is on the security side of the business. So there are some ancillary businesses that grow from this industry as well. So they have to secure it. One company I know that's a minority firm has been asked to, to do the security cameras. So those people on those sides of the business, I've had a minority firm that had some real estate in a suburban community. And this is how people look at the cash opportunity of this industry. They're willing to pay the person a year's lease while they're applying for a license. So the person is operating their going concern and is going to move if they could successfully get their license. But while they're going through that process, which they estimate about a year, they signed a, a year lease and they're willing to pay that money for a year with no income coming in to get one of those cannabis licenses. So it's a huge cash opportunity for a lot of folks to make money. And it's not so easy for us to participate. The last thing I want to mention about New York, too, is one of the things they've considered is this micro businesses. So whether it's on the distribution end or the growing end, I think they've got some provisions in their legislation that allow for really small operators to get a piece of the action. New Jersey didn't consider that at all. I don't know if any other state has. But, you know, those are some of the things now that we're in the game, we can begin to look at what some adjustments should be made so that there is some social equity component that's realized that it is. The, the social equity fund to finance people and a lot of that could be going to returning citizens to get them an opportunity because they don't have the capital, many of them, or don't have the family members who have the capital. So those are some of the challenges. It's federal. You can't put the money in a bank. Now, I was a banker for a couple of years at BCB Community Bank. And so that, you know, people look, they can't put the money in a bank. He's a federally chartered bank. You're talking about the social equity side of this, man, but what about the criminal side? What about uh, reducing or um, how would you say uh, some of the people that, that are locked up for cannabis? You know, what do we do about reducing those charges? And that's the question. Absolutely. And let them out totally, not reduce. Yeah. Not reduction of sentence, but just the governor could... Uh, do a pardon. He could pardon everybody, right? He could pardon everybody. Mm -hmm. Could pardon everybody who's in there for XYZ drug offense. Yes, Joe. So there's another common sense element to that. And I just want to remind everybody uh, of two words. When you have a drug crime, 
you can seize their property. Okay, so asset forfeiture, remember those two words. There's a gigantic incentive for law enforcement to go after drug crimes. Now, you got a violent gangster, gun charges, rape, any other arson, you can arrest that person, but you cannot take his property. Drug crimes, especially cannabis crimes, it's just a low-hanging fruit. And you got somebody that's got a cash business, chances are he's got some stuff. And guess what? Law enforcement knows all about that, and there's no incentive for them to take that out. So I'll keep this one short. I think for folks who don't know about that, the feature on HBO that was just done about Baltimore is a great place to start to learn about that. Well, I want to thank all of you. This has been most enlightening, as always, when I try to do these programs with the help of Francesca, I end up learning just as much as anybody else of you out there. We've got Joe and we've got Wayne and we've got Dwight all coming from different walks of life here. And I hope we have contributed listening audience to your edification. Come back again. Oh, hold on. We can't end yet. You didn't give me one last question. Well, go ahead. I thought you had it. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Not yet. So we've got a former mayor on this call. And I know that most of our good legislation around the country begins in our towns. But I'm going to extend this executive authority to everybody else on the call. You've got executive authority. What's the one policy change you're making tomorrow? Oh, well, if I was governor, I would create a social equity fund that would, would, would fund returning citizens to enter the, if they want to enter the cannabis business would do. The last thing I want to say, though, to that, do you know most of the towns in New Jersey have opted out of allowing cannabis participation? More than a majority of the towns in New Jersey won't allow cannabis participation in New Jersey. So they don't want it. They don't want it. More than I think it's more than 300 towns have opted out. Wayne, you may know, but have you heard any conversations about commuting uh, people's time that have been convicted of uh, cannabis? Yeah, so there's been social advocates, and I'm sure Junius is aware of this, and I think there's social advocates who've been pushing that even in the early stages of the legalization fight. And Senator Rice, actually, part of his holding up of the legislation when he was in the Senate was just that. If you're going to do the social equity piece, then let's go ahead and take care of these people. I think you're just using that argument to get the legalization done. And it sounds like that's just what happened. Can I extend this executive authority to anybody else on the call? Joe, what's the policy? I would be really quick to just decriminalize cannabis crimes and, you know, start their level the playing field and then come back and be tougher on the crimes that have victims. And let's maybe, I don't know work on the problem. Dwight, one big change from you? Uh, I'm with Joe. Uh, let's uh, decriminalize. Major aspect of the whole thing. Because you, uh, you've got a history of people that's already ha- already had those convictions on their records. we got to start there. And I agree with Wayne, too, with the, uh, you know, the cash equity uh, aspect of it. They, they both need to work together simultaneously. So we've got a lot of people who individually have paid their dues, the families that have paid their dues because of the absence of these folks, and the whole society 
when we used to call this thing a devil weed, but now some folks have suddenly gone to heaven and can make that money. So we're going to be back next month with another hopefully exciting adventure. And uh, I think next time we've got a number of alternatives here, but I think we're going to talk about food security. How do we feed people? How do we feed people with a little money, but with a whole lot of ingenuity? And so I'm welcoming you all back to this uh, podcast, Everything's Political. And without further ado, I want you all to ask the question, where's the money? Where is the money? <laughs> Where is the money? Is da, the da, money? Da, 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 da. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right. Somebody's door closed. That was very good. All right. <laughs> Thank you. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.